European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 37, Issue 14, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Luscher. Coronary and Peripheral Interventions, an Update. When Andreas Grunzig started his journey to become the founder of catheter-based cardiovascular interventions, he started, and this is often forgotten, in the peripheral circulation, at first in the iliac and later femoral arteries, with his self-made balloon. Only later did he dare to access the coronary circulation. The first current opinion article of this issue, Drug-Coated Balloon Treatment for Lower Extremity Vascular Disease Intervention and International Positioning Document, authored by Thomas Seller from the Herzzentrum Bad Grotzingen in Germany, reminds us that not only coronary, but also peripheral interventions have made remarkable progress ever since. In particular, drug-coated balloons provide a novel method to locally deliver antiproliferative drugs, such as paclitaxel, into the arterial wall without the need of a chronically implanted delivery system. Following early positive pilot studies, two large pivotal trials confirmed superiority of drug-coated balloons over plain old balloon angioplasty in the treatment of femoropopliteal lesions. Even long lesions and instant restenosis showed promising mid-term technical and clinical results in small single-center randomized studies. Unfortunately, these results have not been produced for below-the-knee applications. As a result, guidelines have not yet provided recommendations regarding the use of drug-coated balloons in peripheral interventions due to the lack of robust evidence. In the coronary circulation, potent antithrombotic therapy is commonly used to reduce the risk of recurrent ischemic events and death, particularly in patients with acute coronary syndromes. Of note, such interventions inevitably lead to an increase in bleeding, which in turn is associated with a prolonged length of stay, greater resource consumption, and eventually a higher morbidity and mortality. Consequently, Inclusion of bleeding as a safety endpoint in randomized controlled trials is essential in the assessment of any new antithrombotic agent and interventional technique. Wouter Kikert from the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands discusses this important issue extensively in the current opinion article entitled Challenges in the Adjudication of Major Bleeding Events in Acute Coronary Syndrome, a plea for a standardized approach and guidance to adjudication. Atherosclerosis is the underlying cause of any clinical problem that is approached by interventional techniques. The understanding of its cellular and molecular mechanisms is therefore of crucial importance, particularly for future preventative interventions. Andrew James Murphy and colleagues from the Baker IDI Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne, Australia, discuss in their clinical review Disordered Hematopoiesis and Atherothrombosis the role of inflammatory cells. Atherosclerosis is a lipid-driven infiltration of inflammatory cells in large and medium arteries. Increased production and activation of monocytes, neutrophils, T-cells and platelets, driven by hypercholesterolemia and defective HDL-mediated cholesterol efflux and function, and altered subclasses, tissue necrosis and cytokine production after myocardial infarction, 
or metabolic abnormalities associated with diabetes contribute to atherogenesis and atherothrombosis. This suggests that in addition to traditional approaches of LDL-lowering and antiplatelet drugs, Therapies directed at abnormal hematopoiesis, including anti-inflammatory agents, as well as drugs that suppress myelopoiesis, may help to prevent atherothrombosis. Antithrombotic drugs are essential for the prevention of stent thrombosis after PCI, particularly in patients with acute coronary syndromes. Of note, orally applied agents such as clopidogrel, prazugrel, or ticagrelor, require several hours to exert their antithrombotic effects. On the other hand, with currently available intravenous agents, it is difficult or impossible to reverse when bleeding occurs. Thus, agents with an immediate onset of action and rapid reversibility are a clinical requirement. Cangrelor, a novel intravenous P2Y12 inhibitor, provides such a pharmacological profile. In the ESC fast-track manuscript, the effect of Cangrelor and access site on ischemic and bleeding events, insights from Champion Phoenix, the investigators sought to assess whether the femoral or radial approach for PCI interacted with the efficacy and safety of this novel drug. A total of 11,145 patients had been randomly assigned into either Cangrelor or Clopidogrel at the time of primary PCI. A total of 8,064, 74%, and 2,855, 26%, patients underwent femoral or radial PCI, respectively. Among the femoral cohort, the primary event rate was 4.8% with Cangrelor versus 6.0% with Clopidogrel, and among the radial cohort, 4.4% and 5.7%, respectively. The rate of gusto-severe bleeding in the femoral cohort was 0.2% with cangrelor and 0.1% with clopidogrel, while in the radial cohort it was 0.1% in both groups. Evaluation of safety endpoints with the more sensitive acuity revealed major bleeding in the femoral cohort of 5.2% with cangrelor and 3.1% with clopidogrel, while in the radial cohort, the rate was 1.5% with cangrelor and 0.7% with clopidogrel. The authors conclude that in Champion Phoenix, cangrelor reduced ischemic events with no significant increase in gusto defined severe bleeding. Of note, the absolute rates of bleeding, regardless of the definition, tended to be lower when PCI was performed via the radial artery. The paper is accompanied by a thoughtful editorial by Sanjeet Singh Jolly from the McMaster University Population Health Research Institute, Hamilton Health Sciences in Hamilton, Canada. Ticagrelor reduced MACE by 15-16% to in patients with prior infarction in Pegasus TIMI 54. In the second ESC-CTU fast-track clinical research paper entitled Ischemic Risk and Efficacy of Ticagrelor in Relation to Time from P2Y12 Inhibitor Withdrawal in Patients with Prior MI, Insights from Pegasus Timmy 54. Mark Bonaka and colleagues from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston hypothesized that patients who recently discontinued P2Y12 inhibition even years after myocardial infarction 
may be at particular risk of MACE and may derive benefit from continuation or reinitiation of therapy. Patients in Pegasus TIMI-54 were categorized by time from last P2Y12 inhibitor, i.e. less than or equal to 30, more than 30 to 360, or more than 360 days. In the placebo arm, patients who more recently stopped P2Y12 inhibitor therapy had a greater number of risk factors, but still had a higher risk of MACE, with a hazard ratio between 1.28 and 1.47, compared with those who stopped after one year prior. The benefit of ticagrelor depended on the time from last dose. The authors conclude that the benefit of ticagrelor for long-term secondary prevention in patients with prior infarction and at least one additional risk factor appeared more marked in patients continuing or restarting after only a brief interruption of P2Y12 inhibition as compared to those who have proven themselves stable more than two years from their MI and off P2Y12 inhibitor therapy for more than a year, while the increase in bleeding events was similar. For clinicians considering a strategy of prolonged P2Y12 inhibitor therapy in high-risk patients, these data suggest greater benefit in the continuation of such therapy without interruption after infarction, rather than reinitiating such therapy in patients who have remained stable for an extended period. Future analyses may help to clarify further the profile of post-MI patients most likely to benefit from uninterrupted dual antiplatelet therapy and those in whom bleeding might be increased without a reduction in ischemic events. The paper is accompanied by an editorial by Paul A. Goebel from the Sinai Hospital in Baltimore, USA. Although non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants are recommended for stroke prevention in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation based on clinical trial results, there is a need for safety and efficacy data from unselected patients in everyday clinical practice. In the third fast-track clinical research paper entitled Xantus, a real-world prospective observational study of patients treated with rivaroxaban for stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. A. John Cam and colleagues from St. George's, University of London, noted that Xantus investigated the safety and efficacy of the factor XA inhibitor, rivaroxaban, in routine clinical use in 6,784 patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation treated with rivaroxaban. They ranged from 0 to 3.4, and treatment duration averaged 329 days. Treatment emergent major bleeding occurred in 128 patients, equaling 2.1 events per 100 patient years, while 118, equaling to 1.9 events per 100 patient years, died, and 43, equaling to 0.7 events per 100 patient years, suffered a stroke. The paper is accompanied by an editorial by Christopher B. Granger from the Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina, USA. Cardiac involvement is common in sickle cell disease. However, hematological determinants and prognostic markers for it are lacking. In their paper, Hematological Determinants of Cardiac Involvement in Adults with Sickle Cell Disease, Tibord Dami from the Henri Mondor University Hospital in Créteil, France, 
address this issue in 656 sickle cell disease patients with SS or S beta zero thalassemia and hemoglobin levels of 80 to 95 grams per liter. Compared to other patients, those in the fourth quartiles of left ventricular end diastolic and left atrial dimensions and those with high cardiac index had significantly lower total and fetal hemoglobin and red blood cell counts and higher lactate dehydrogenase, bilirubin, and a higher percentage of dense red blood cells. A lower percentage of fetal hemoglobin and a low red blood cell count were associated with high cardiac index. A high percentage of dense red blood cells, or no alpha thalassemia, gene deletion, was associated with greater severity of anemia and cardiac dilation, and with higher cardiac index. During the median follow-up of 46 months, 7.6% of the patients died with tricuspid regurgitation velocity of more than or equal to 2.5 meters per second, being a predictor of mortality. The risk of death increased fourfold when left ventricular ejection fraction was below 55%. The authors conclude that cardiac structure and function dilation and hematologic variables reflecting hemolysis Red blood cell rigidity and blood viscosity are important predictors of mortality in these patients. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its readers.